You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, everyone. Thank you again for pressing play. We have a great show again for you today, a very interesting show. And matter of fact, we're moving right along. We're already in episode number seven. This is really cool. I want to ask for your help before we get into everything. I need your help in making the new and noteworthy section in iTunes. And you can help me by going to iTunes, looking for Behind the Note, and rating the show. Rate and review the show. And I'll be very thankful. Now, I hope you give me five stars. But if you don't think it's five-star quality, then that's totally fine. I just really need the rating, and I can use the feedback, to be honest, so that I can improve. I realize that I'm new at this, and I want to get better. So please, go to iTunes, rate Behind the Note Podcast, and I'll just be very thankful for that. Now, today's episode is all about music marketing. As musicians, I understand that we spend a lot of time in rehearsal and personal practice and even in performing. But how much time do we spend in marketing? We have to market ourselves. Otherwise, we really have nowhere to play. We have nowhere to perform. So that's very important. So I got some help today. I reached out to a music marketing expert who actually is a musician and not just someone who's great at marketing. So he's going to tell us his story, and he's going to help us with this music marketing aspect of the business. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today Mr. John Ozaka. Thank you, John, for joining us today. We're really happy to have you. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I want to tell everybody how I know about John. I discovered his podcast, Music Marketing Manifesto. I was so excited to find that someone is marketing themselves the way they should as a musician. But before we get into that, John, would you please tell us a little bit about your early career as a musician? Yeah, let's see where to start. Um, you know, like probably most musicians, I've been doing it since, uh, you know, I was a teenager. Um kind of you hit that age where you start thinking about who you want to be and what you want to do and fell in love with uh you know rock and roll music and and the rest is history i decided i needed to do that for the rest of my life and um set out uh for, i was born and raised in hawaii a little town called waimanalo on the island of oahu and set out uh headed over to seattle initially because at the time seattle was very happening and um, did my time up there, was working with uh, Kelly Curtis Management and got a, a couple demo deals and things like that, but eventually relocated to Los Angeles and was there for about two years doing everything, as, you know, worked as a musician, I was a club promoter, I actually spent quite a lot of time promoting clubs and, and that actually end, ended up lending itself, I think, a lot to my um, eventual record deal and I, I had signed with uh, Interscope and 1999, that was the first record deal I signed, and they say uh, it was the largest new artist signing in history, or at least at the time, and you know, I always qualify that because I don't actually know. It's not like there's some book out there where they publish the numbers on these things, but that's what the trade paper said, and at the very least, it was a large deal. 
And uh, for a second, it looked like I was going to be the next, uh, you know, big thing. But at the end of the day, that record came out, uh, didn't sell enough copies. And as the story goes, you know, I was dropped from the label. And then I proceeded, you know, I didn't didn't give up. <laughs> I kept going. Uh, I actually signed a deal with Universal briefly. Um, that kind of, as it got closer to the release date, got a little... Uh, flown a little further up the flagpole and somebody uh, decided that they didn't want to commit resources to it so got dropped from that deal before the album even came out then got re-signed to a Warner Brothers sub for a one-off that record came out but again that was just a one-off deal then I put out another album, a third album with an independent label called Dreamy Draw they were a startup and again great guys but as is the case with many indie labels didn't really know too much about what it took to, to sell records and didn't do anything impressive there either. And so while those initial advances that I got through that first deal and the, the publishing deal that sort of followed, um, you know, they were pretty hefty and they lasted for a while. But as the years started to pass, you know, I, I kind of, the, the bank account was only going in one direction. And I realized that uh, if I didn't do something um, soon, I was going to have to go out and get a job one day. <laughs> I definitely did not want to do that. I had no skills to speak of aside from music and uh, just had no interest in it. And I've always had an entrepreneurial sort of um, side and spirit and always played around with little um, companies and things like that. And probably like a lot of people listening to this, I saw one of those flashy red headlines out there on the internet promising that if I bought some course on internet marketing, um, I, you know, it would teach me how to make easy money in my sleep with little to no effort. And uh, I shelled out a couple hundred bucks or whatever it was. I bought the course, sat up all night setting up the strategy. It was a paid advertising strategy, so things happened fairly quickly with it. Um, and I spent 10 bucks on advertising, woke up the next morning, and lo and behold, I had sold an ebook for $20 and got the bug. I, was, I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, because you have this voice in your head telling you that all these things are scams. I was just shocked when I saw, oh my God, there, there's money to be made out of here. And I became obsessed. And I spent the next year, you know, that was not followed by, um, you know, a, a slew of additional sales and all this easy money that uh, many of these products promise. But I knew that it was possible and I became obsessed and I spent the next year just reading and watching and consuming everything I could about marketing. You know, we're talking probably 500 to 1,000 books and courses and things like that on the topic of marketing and just really wanted to master this and figure it out. Again, more and more in the pursuit of avoiding getting a real job than anything else. But but I think I did. I, I sort of cracked the code. I figured it out. Had a little luck along the way, and I built a business that is now uh, brought in. Um, in the last, I think it's been about four and a half years since it uh, since it really started making money, and it's now brought in well over two million dollars. I've actually got a couple businesses in place, and things are going fairly well on that front. Now, initially, that had nothing to do with music. This was just me starting uh, an internet business. It was in the health space initially. Um, I'm now, i got some stuff in the music space as well. But with my finances in order, uh, you know, it only kind of made sense to sort of start using all this new mar- these new marketing skills on my music. And um, I would set up a campaign here or there and run a promotion to, to my own music, and lo and behold, the same same tactics that I was using to sell products on the internet were also working to sell music. In fact, they were working very well. The conversion rate numbers were um, often higher than one would expect in traditional markets. And as you do when you discover these things, I got excited. I talked to my friends, other musicians, and um, everyone was curious. Everyone you know, wants to know how to sell music. Um, uh, I think every musician can relate to feeling sort of vulnerable. You seem to, it feels like you need a manager or a lawyer or a uh, booking agent or this team of people in order to make um, money. And it was, it was empowering and, and, um, 
I don't know, just uh, it felt so fantastic to be able to generate income and sales without anyone in place, to be able to generate it out of my own momentum that was not a show. You know, I think, I think that's a common feeling. Most musicians feel the only way that they can actually sell copies is by playing shows. And playing shows are great. They are great ways to sell albums and make lifelong fans. Uh, but we only have, you know, most of us don't want to be on the road uh, for 300 days out of the year for the next 30 years. That we, Most of us sort of burn out at, at the prospect of that. So anyway, it was, it was very empowering. I was excited to share this stuff with other friends. And I had a friend who was going to put out his first album. And he had a lot going on, uh, a lot going for him. He had a large Twitter following, but didn't have any mailing list. And he was going to put it out himself. And I kind of saw, I felt I could see what was going to happen. You know, he he was going to overestimate the power of that Twitter following and think that by just releasing it, it was going to sort of sell itself. And I said, hey, you know, why don't you let me take over the marketing on this? And uh, I'll, I'll basically do it for next to nothing. And and be your label. Essentially, I wasn't a label. I just worked in that capacity. Um, I was the marketing guy. And, and I put out the record of, for him. And we were able to set the all-time single-day sales record over at CD Baby doing this. We got him on the Billboard charts. And uh, I think he recouped his his uh, budget in the first week or something like that. And we really felt it was a, a, a pretty big success. Um, and, you know, I think we spent something like 400 bucks on the process. And truth be told, that was probably the least effective part of, of what we did. Um, and so with that kind of success under my belt, um, I thought, you know, it only makes sense I put this down uh, so others can follow the blueprint. And I created a course called Music Marketing Manifesto, and that's now in its third incarnation. And um, that was initially released in January of 2010. And uh, that has, you know, since grown into a very, very large community of musicians and active um, blog and podcast. And I think we're just over 20,000 subscribers at the moment. And there's a mastermind community called the Insider Circle and all these different things. We put out some software and have a lot of products and services planned for the future. But basically, it's a community of musicians who are interested in learning what is fundamentally uh, direct response marketing uh, for music. You know, we hear it referred to a lot as direct-to-fan marketing, where you're bypassing the record labels and the traditional distribution channels and marketing directly to the consumer. And that that is true, and that's what it is. But I think even under the umbrella of direct-to-fan marketing, there are a lot of differing views. Um, What I really truthfully do teach is direct response marketing, which is a type of marketing that has been around for well over 100 years and for some reason has just not been used in in the music world for some reason and and I'm not exactly sure why because it turns out it works quite well but it effectively just involves understanding the different psychological states that a person needs to go through before they're comfortable taking an action and then creating an email series that addresses those different states and walks a, a person from being someone who's never heard of you before into becoming a fan and often even a friend uh, you know at least a, a virtual friend someone who knows you through email communication and online communication um, and, and again, really turns them into a fan and we, you know, we, we've, and ultimately a customer. And we've heard a lot about that thousand fan model where it really only takes 1000 true fans to make a living that that's, that's somewhat true, but you know, simply having 1000 true fans, if you just do the math and you're selling one album to each of them a year, that's only $10,000 a year. That, that alone isn't enough, but by creating, by looking at everything you're doing as a funnel, as a sort of purchase funnel and, 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 
focusing on sub- subscriber and customer value. You know, how much is each subscriber on your mailing list worth? How much is each customer ultimately worth? And pushing those figures as high as you can. And again, this is maybe jumping a, a little bit ahead here, um, but pushing those numbers as high as as uh, high as you can. That allows us to then uh, look to advertising opportunities where we can, you know, if we know that each subscriber on our list is generating us, uh, let's say, a dollar for uh, the first 30 days that they're on our list, if that's the average amount of money we're generating, then we know we can go out and look for advertising opportunities that will bring us in a subscriber for, say, 50 cents. Um, and uh, those kind of opportunities are out there. And anyway, that's that that's sort of, that might be a little vague. Uh, it's kind of... I'm trying to explain it, but realizing that the more I explain, the more <laughs> I need to explain. Yeah, it's, um, but it's that really okay. It's just what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You said a lot there. Um, you actually answered a few of my questions I was going to ask you. But you kind of you kind of touched on, a, you said something about a funnel and getting people to, to buy from you. And I know what you're talking about, but I want to introduce it to the audience. And I believe you're speaking sure. of Ada, if I'm saying it correctly. Did I say it correctly? You know, the truth is, and I always say this when I talk about it and give these uh, lectures as well, because I've never heard anyone else say it. I've okay. only read it. So I don't know if it's Ida or Ada. But okay. Yeah, it's a A-I-D-A a, a uh, funnel is what, it, what and, it's traditionally referred to. And A-I-D-A stands for attention, interest, desire, and finally action, right? Yeah. Is that correct? I've always heard it aw- Awareness being the first one, but attention is more or less the same thing. Sure. So explain uh, what that means and how what that means to us and how we can use that in marketing. Sure. Well, um, for the musicians funnel, that that awareness that first starts off by that that introduction, getting um, you're, you're driving traffic, you're out there, whether you're paying for it or generating it for free, uh, or even just sharing a web address with people at shows. You, you first need to introduce people to your initial offer, which I usually recommend uh, that people give away some free music to get people on your list. You know, they, they come to a page, uh, a very simple one-page website, uh, effectively. I mean, technically, I suppose it has some more pages on it, but all they're seeing when they land on it is one page. This is referred to as a squeeze page in marketing circles. It's okay, I got to stop you right here. I got to stop you right Should here they? because we have a page, but now the question comes up. How do what is this page? How do we create this page? You see, you see where I'm going with this now. Sure. So okay, answer the what is this page? Yeah, what is what is a squeeze page? First of all, because I'm afraid we'll be speaking in terms that are not familiar with everyone. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. A squeeze page is it's again, it's a one page website that is designed to literally uh, squeeze contact information out of someone who has landed on. So for us as musicians, what that would mean is uh, a picture, uh, a simple the. Typically, the simpler the better, although you can dress them up if you want, but a simple one-page website. No links to your bio, no links to places where they can listen to your music or buy your music, no links to your YouTube channel, nothing at all, but but a big headline. And you could actually accomplish this in a multitude of ways. You could do this with video, but this I typically rely more on text. So my squeeze pages look like the simple white background. Um, with a headline up at the top that makes a bold claim or promise about what your music is ultimately going to deliver. And that headline, 
I always kind of try to liken it to imagine most musicians that perform have had this experience. You're standing there at a merch table and you're really hustling and someone's kind of walking by. They make eye contact and you kind of call out and get their attention somehow and pull them in. You have this conversation and that ultimately leads to a sale. That's the perfect pitch, That those moments that most of us have had where you take someone who was just walking by. Maybe they saw you play. Maybe they didn't. But you pull them in and, and, that, and a dialogue ensues and that ultimately leads to a sale. What we're trying to do is effectively distill that process into copy, into text or video or whatever it is. Now, it's not going to be identical to that conversation because the circumstances are different, but the elements, the psychological states that we walk that person through are going to be the same. So that that first thing that a person is going to look at when they land on your page is typically that big headline. So what you need to be doing is think about thinking about your target demographic. So who is going to be landing on your page? If you're a hip-hop artist, they're hip-hop fans. If you're a country music artist, they're, they're uh, country music fans. And each genre, each artist out there has sort of that perfect fan. And, you know, there are exercises you can really do in your mind to drill down uh, on your uh, perfect fan, on your ideal demographic to so you understand what conversation is already taking place in that person's mind. Why? What type of ad headline would that person potentially click on? What are their interests? How do they speak? What imagery will they respond to? And you're trying to effectively speak directly to that person with uh, that, that headline. So one that I've used with success, my latest album is kind of an alt-country kind of album. So my headline was something like, and I'm... I'm hoping I remember this right. It was like, kick off your boots, pour yourself a glass of whiskey, and enjoy one of the most refreshing new alt-country artists in a really long time. So what I'm trying to do there is, again, throw out some imagery that I think that that market will respond to with boots and whiskey. Without necessarily literally spelling out, I'm offering an experience. You know, I'm offering an invitation into a world more than just saying, hey, get a free download. No one needs a free download. We don't, we don't buy music because of the inherent value in a download. You know, no one cares about that. What they want is the experience that you as an artist offer. We want to sign up to be, not literally sign up, but we, we want to uh, align ourselves with a tribe, with a brand, with a lifestyle, with a world, and to some extent live vicariously through that artist and, and sort of know that feeling of, how do I articulate this? We get a sense uh, we reaffirm who we are by the by the things out there in this world, by the products, by the individuals, and by the philosophies that we align ourselves to. And that's true of music. You know, we when we follow an artist, when we align ourselves with an artist, we feel that that somehow defines us to some extent. So it's really important in that first headline to offer an experience, not just a free download. And then from there, once you've got their attention, once you've made that big, bold promise, you support it. And typically I'll do that with an image so people kind of get a sense of who they're talking or who they're looking at, uh, who the artist is that's speaking to them. I'll use some press quotes. If you don't have press quotes, you can get you can just get quotes from fans. All we're trying to establish is some social proof, so so people get the sense that there's something real happening there. Then we've got some supporting copy. You know, a few lines of text below that, basically, kind of reintroducing yourself. Uh, you have a little more space here with these paragraphs uh, to explain who you are, why this person that clicked on this page might be interested in signing up to get some free music, and ultimately just reaffirming what you want them to do, which is to enter the name and email address and the 
big sign-up form that should be very obvious on that page, and uh, and and by and and tell them that by signing up, what's going to happen is that they're going to get some free music in their inbox in a few seconds. So that's kind of the idea with the squeeze page. And then once they are on your list, that that's by the way, that's the awareness part of the funnel. Right. That's just introducing them, getting getting them. You, uh, in the real world, this would literally be the handshake. You know, this is just when you sit down next to someone on a bar stool and say, "Oh, hey, what's your name?" You know, this is the introduction. That's the awareness. Now they know who you are. Now they know what you claim that you are. But you really, ha- you know, you you don't yet have a relationship. There's no real reason they should be wanting to buy from you. They should still be health, you know, healthily. Is that a word? Um, they should be fairly skeptical in a healthy way. Um, and uh, but now it's our job to build that relationship. So that's when we go into the interest uh, phase, and this will typically take place through a series of emails, a series of pre-written emails that are scheduled to go out over a period of time. And we use something called an autoresponder. Um, there are a lot of different autoresponders on the market. Um, I tend to use those that are designed for marketers as opposed to um, the music industry because I think their the features are a lot more powerful. And some of the ones that are designed for musicians just simply can't do what I'm about to describe. But you would pre-write a series of emails that are, again, designed to sort of build that bond. So, uh, And the emails are not always, uh, you know, often the emails are simply um, links to blog posts and things like that. But the idea is over time, you know, you're not going into any kind of hard pitch or selling. You know, this isn't about, hey, buy my album, buy my album, buy my album. This is about building a relationship with people. So that interest phase, you know, how do we, how do we, if you sit down again, using that bar analogy, you sit down on a bar stool next to someone, how, how does a relationship grow? It grows through bonding. It grows through connecting. It grows through feeling that you are like that person, that you have things in common, that, that they reflect and represent your own values. And so how do we do that as as musicians, well, like one of the first things that I'll do, and again, these are not hard and fast rules. You can do this in any number of ways, but I'll send folks to a blog post first, and you know, I'll refer to it. And to be honest, I, I heard this term somewhere else, so I didn't coin it or anything. I just can't remember where I first heard it, but it was a blog post of a lifetime, where if you only have a few moments, you know, it's that first click that someone's ever taken that that second email, the first email is delivering the free tracks. And a couple days later, they get that first email from you and you want them to read something. And you, you got a very good chance with interest being as high as it is. They've only just signed up. This is the first uh, content email going out to them. A very good chance they're going to click. So you've got a few seconds to capture their interest. And I'll, I'll do it through telling a story about what, ultimately why I'm a musician. And through that story, I'll try to establish whatever social proof that I can. Um, but really, you, you just want to identify what is ultimately your brand and show people that they that there are things there in your personality and in your music and in your story that they can ultimately connect with. And again, this all this all works when you understand who your target demographic is and when you understand what your brand is. So from there, that'll be followed by, again, uh, a series of emails, and that's different for everyone. For some, it might be three emails. For some, it might be 20, but that are all designed to build that interest. And again, you could give more free music. You could share a music video. You could tell more stories about your career. Um, but it's all just about building that bond, building that interest, uh, and, and creating opportunities for people to feel connected to you as an individual and as an artist. And another powerful part of that process is just genuine communication. So you 
in these blog posts and in this content that you're sharing, there are comments. You encourage people to leave comments. You send out emails and encourage people to hit reply and speak with you. It's sales 101 to some extent. You're encouraging dialogue and it's relationship building 101. And so once you've done that, once you've built that interest, then we need to create desire. And to do that, we use some proven selling tactics. And this is really where direct response marketing comes in. And there are a a lot of sort of proven sales triggers out there. But one of the easiest ones to explain one that, that, that we're all very familiar with is a limited time offer. Again, how do you create desire? You've got interest. They're interested in what you do, but they haven't purchased yet, so they haven't felt desire. How do you make somebody want to truly take action? Well, fear of loss, you know, um, uh, creating uh, time-sensitive offers is a great way to do it. And again, it's not the only way to do it, but uh, it's a really effective way to do it. So if you have somebody uh, that's been on your list for a while, they've been reading your blog posts, they're interested, chances are, you know, well, they definitely would know that you're a musician. They'd definitely be aware of the products that you sell because you'd be talking about them throughout that relationship building process. But when you finally go in and say, hey, I want you to buy my music effectively, it really helps if you give a person a reason to get off that fence. So that might be a discount, it might be a bundle. And if you just say something along the lines of, hey, uh, you know, all, all the kind comments that folks have um, been leaving uh, over the last whatever it is, uh, amount of time uh, have really uh, put me in a good mood. And again, I'm just sort of making this up here. But uh, And I'd like to give something back to my subscribers. So for my subscribers only, for the next 72 hours, I'm going to offer a limited time offer where you can get my album for half price or you can get two of my albums for the price of one or whatever that is. Putting that time sensitivity on it forces a person to make a decision. Do I want this or do I not want this? And, and when you when in marketing, when you force people, and this is really the crux of direct response marketing, when you force people to make a decision, yes, I want this or no, I don't, sure, many, many people that might have become customers are going to pass, but many more uh, will become customers because they are forced to make a decision. Getting off the fence, that's probably the biggest challenge with any kind of marketing. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but I've, when my albums have come out in the past, I was always shocked to find out how many of my very good friends never bought the album. It, and it wasn't necessarily... And, and they're fans of my music. They come to the shows, but they just never got around to buying it. But when you position it like so, when, you, you know, when you're telling people like, hey, here... here when you're creating the, 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 the dialogue in a person's mind where they're thinking to themselves, yeah, I've been interested in this guy for a while. I've been reading all his blogs, uh, blog posts and checking out his music. It sounds pretty good. And now he's offering it to me at a price I'm probably not going to see again. Now's probably, if ever I was going to buy it, now's a good time to get it. When you create that kind of a mental state, you're going to see um, a lot of conversions. You're going to see a lot more sales than you would if you just sort of threw it out there and said, hey, it's available on iTunes. Pick it up whenever you feel like it. And Again, I hope I'm not rambling too much here, but by understanding each one of those elements and, and creating this, this funnel, this consistent process, this consistent step-by-step process that you are walking people through with these pre-written and pre-scheduled emails, um, and again, the email is the trigger. Sometimes we're sharing blog posts and things like that. It doesn't necessarily all have to exist within the confines of that email itself, but, but the email is the trigger, and, and you can walk by 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 programming this by scheduling it, you are creating 
um, a scalability that you just don't have if you're going out there and performing live shows night after night after night. You know, it requires there are only so many hands you can shake at that merch table, and obviously touring is time consuming and expensive. But when you are doing this virtually, when you're doing it with things like email, everything is digital, uh, everything is pre-written. But ne- nevertheless, your scalability is is to some extent infinite with this kind of a process and um, you can and it, it, you can really go out there find an audience and sell music uh, regardless of whether or not you ever perform live at all wow that's pretty impressive to to be able to makes, sell music did, did that makes sense by the way that was well that was really it makes of course there a few times yeah it makes it makes sense um, I do have some questions maybe we can make some things clear um, sure. I know for me I personally had a fear of what do I write in these emails every week or every month. The fear is I might run out of material to write. So I'm wondering what are we going to write in these emails because I get a feeling it's got to be more than come to my show. We're playing here next week. Well, yeah, it's definitely more than come to my show. We're playing here next week. Um, and again, you're you're pre-writing these emails. They're they're all sent out via an autoresponder. So you theoretically don't have to be writing emails over and over and over. It might be the same six emails that go out to everyone that signs up on your list, and you may never send out a real-time broadcast. I don't recommend that. I think sending out some real-time broadcasts is, a, is an important part of the process. But theoretically, uh, you don't really have to send out that much email. How do you come up with ideas uh, for interesting content? I mean, in order to do that, I mean, I, I think you need, I think every artist, and I think this is really what's lacking with so many independent artists, I think you need to understand uh what your brand ultimately is, and you know, I don't mean to reduce music to to a brand, but uh, from a business perspective, that is ultimately what it is. And there needs to be something there that is bigger than just the music. We don't align ourselves with musical acts usually just because of the song. We get behind artists because they represent something bigger than just the music. And you know, whether it's was Bob Dylan as this uh, civil rights activist of a musician, whether it was uh, the Beatles, you know, John Lennon exploring sort of the boundaries of conventional thinking and and, and the mind, whether it's, uh, you know, someone like uh, uh, whatever that thing is that you personally um, respond, your demographic uh, response to, once you know what that is, once you know what that brand that is bigger than the music itself is, then it should theoretically be easy to create content that speaks to that that market, if that makes any sense. Whether they're topical news stories um, that your audience will care about, you know, if you are if you are making uh, punk rock music that's sort of anti-establishment, and then something happens out there in the you know, some political thing uh, or some injustice, political injustice happens out there in the world, writing about it and railing against it in a blog post makes perfect sense. And that would ha- not necessarily have anything to do with the music. You could potentially tie it in to a song that you've written or something like that and use it as a vehicle to push uh, an album. But really, it's just a, about keeping those fans engaged so that when you do have something to sell, uh, you've got you've got the attention of a crowd. Makes sense. So... What about blogging? I know a lot of musicians, they just don't blog. And it seems like blogging might be an important part of this of this sales funnel. 
what are, what are we writing about in the blog? Is it more of the same thing that we're putting in our emails? Well, uh, you know, I think it's like like I just said. You're you're well. Th- there are different things that you're trying to accomplish. If those blog posts are part of your initial funnel, then I think you're trying to create interest and and ultimately desire. You're trying to. Sh- tell stories about your career and about your life that pull people into your world and make them feel that that connection to you when it comes to so that's one type of blogging those those blog posts that are part of the funnel that really need to serve that purpose of building that interest and creating that desire but then there's another type of blogging which is just keeping people engaged and again i think i think what you write about is just when you understand who your target audience is then you understand what they they're going to care about what they're interested in. If if you're making a cooking show and you know your target audience is, uh, you know, stay-at-home moms in their 40s uh, or whatever the case may be, then you don't go and have some Andrew Dice Clay on as a guest because it would totally alienate your your um, your fans. And so you don't need to go and share the stories of your life that don't have anything to do with your brand, but you find those stories that do and you share those with, with your brand. Again, I use the example like if you're a punk rock artist and something atrocious happens out there in the world on a political level, that something that you know um, – would would appeal to your demographic because they are all political minded um, anti establishment punk rock fans then that'd be the kind of thing that you could share whatever your personal experience with that new story is it could also just be something about your experiences out there on the road uh, or or whatever the case may be but I think it's really important that we don't just share. Uh, hey, I'm in the studio again. No one really wants to hear about a story that is completely just about you and just personal. They want to. The story needs to be a little bit bigger and it needs to involve them, the readers, the listeners, whatever the case may be. Um, n- not literally, of course, because, of course, the story wouldn't involve them, but it needs to trigger uh, an interest um, and, and some existing passions that are bigger than just, you know, what happened to you in the studio last night. You know, it needs to be part of the bigger story, part of that. It needs to be consistent with that channel of content that you've been uh, publishing uh, over the time that that person has been a subscriber to you, to your newsletter. Thanks a lot, John. I have one or two more questions for you. Sure. Do you use my first question is Do you use Facebook first? I do. I'm. I'm not. I. I. I uh, I'm not hugely in love with social media. Like I, okay. I use it per- personally. I have my personal profile. I probably look at my wall once every two weeks. Uh, I do have pages for. I have an artist page that I've largely neglected, um, and I have um, a music marketing manifesto page that I, you know, post to here and there. Um, I think social media is a great reinforcer of the relationship that you have with your email subscribers. But nothing is more powerful than than an email subscriber, especially with, you know, things like EdgeRank and the ever changing algorithms of these these social profiles. You don't really own anything if you if you're relying on your Facebook page to connect you with your fans. I mean, many listening probably remember the heyday of MySpace when we all had tens of thousands of, of friends and thought that that meant something. Uh, one, that very rarely did in terms of sales. And two, when MySpace sort of 
you know, it didn't go under, it still exists, of course, but when it kind of collapsed in the sense that it no longer had relevance, we lost everything. We lost those relationships with those fans, and we all had to sort of start from scratch. And I think you're leaving yourself open to the same problems if you rely on your Facebook page or your Twitter page. But I think they're still valuable because they're yet another platform. People are engaging with Facebook. They are engaging with Twitter. They are engaging with Pinterest. And so I I think the ideal scenario is that you – you've got that email list and you are you're communicating with them via email the 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 number of people that are going to see that email and read that email and interact with that email is infinitely higher than the number of people that are going to see that facebook post that you put out and interact with that facebook post because you know when somebody sends you an email it's a very different thing uh than than a facebook post and a facebook post disappears if nobody logs in for a few days um you know it gets pushed so far down on the wall that no one's ever going to see it but an email sits in that inbox until it's either deleted uh or, or opened so the ideal relationship is you're you're making sure that you're doing all your key marketing stuff via email and you're making sure that you're building that relationship you're making sure that you're sending out all that key communication via email but then you're also out there connecting with people on social media and just kind of reminding people that you're out there so that person is seeing these posts that you're putting up on Facebook they're seeing these Twitter things and for that brief moment you know your brand your name is getting in front of those people and and I in many instances they're interacting with you and you're keeping that relationship going in a non-salesy kind of way you're really just using the platform as it was meant to be used and and so by staying in their minds on a regular basis with social media it makes those email messages when they finally do go out all the more powerful and that's kind of more how I use it now I use Facebook advertising a lot so I'm technically out there on Facebook every day uh, with Facebook ads um, but that's a whole different thing than than using it as a social platform. Yes, I see. So um, how much does a ad cost on Facebook? Does that depend or is it, it a flat out? It completely varies. Okay. No, it varies. It varies a lot, not only on your demographic, but it, it, it has to do with um, your performance, the performance of your ads. So, you know, the biggest factor is the click-through rate. So if you've got an ad out there and very few people are clicking on it, then Facebook's really, you know, they want they want content that people are engaging with. And so if you, let's say, okay, Facebook's either going to charge you per click or they're going to charge you per thousand impressions. And let's say for uh, 1,000 impressions, um, you get... Uh, one click that would be a what is that point one percent click through rate and which by the way for a right column ad that's probably about average that's a, that's a decent click through rate actually for right column ads meaning for one thousand impressions you get a, a single click now if another if you're bidding fifty cents and another guy comes along and he's bidding only thirty cents but he's getting uh, two people to click on it because his picture or his ad copy is more enticing and he's getting a point two percent click through rate. Facebook is actually making more money. Um, they're getting, you know, they're making sixty cents per one thousand impressions by serving up that person's ad than they would from the guy paying fifty cents who only got a single click. So they're going to give uh, that person who is bidding less but is getting more engagement. They're going to give that person the impressions. So your price goes down the higher your click through rate is. So there are a lot of factors there. And then what happens as well with a Facebook ad is if you're let's say bidding on people that like Madonna or whatever the case may be, you've let's say you've got that audience is a million strong, whatever it might be. There are a million people that have clicked that they like the Madonna Madonna's page or 
again, whatever that number might be. Once those million people have been exposed to your ad, then the response rate is going to go down. You know, you don't typically you click on something you, you click on something when it first sort of pops up in your feed or when it first pops up on your the right column after that after the 10th exposure to that ad if you still haven't clicked the chances that you are ever going to click are, are are dramatically going down so there is this peak of uh, uh, of engagement with an ad, and after a bit of time, that engagement is going to go down. The click-through rate is going to go down, and your prices are going to go up. So it's constantly fluctuating, and it's all over the place. And depending on how uh, you know what your overall quality score is, an advertiser, what your quality score of your campaign, all these variables are going to affect the price there. So um, yeah, there's no real way of saying how much it, it can cost. I've seen people paying a dollar a click, and people paying three cents a click. It really. It really varies a lot. I'd say right now I'm, for most of my ads, paying in the ballpark of 15, 16 cents um, uh, in engagement with the ad. Those are newsfeed ads, so they're not all clicks over to my website. Sometimes they're clicks over to my Facebook page. Sometimes they're comments that people leave. But yeah, I mean, I've got another ad right now that's getting something like nine cent clicks. Uh, so it really, it really varies a lot. But I do want to point out that ultimately, through those clicks on Facebook, whether they go to your personal page or your fan page or not these people uh should be uh, arriving on your squeeze page on your website is that true that's what i would do i Mm -hmm. don't i don't see you again it's all about numbers it's all about roi the whole name of the game as far as i'm concerned is doing the math and figuring out what each subscriber is worth to you and then finding um uh, advertising opportunities to find to acquire new subscribers. So I and and the ROI just isn't there. Getting a like, a Facebook like, that means that means really very little. There's some value there, but there's there's not. You know, it's nothing compared to the value of an email subscriber. So that's the metric that I'm I'm looking at. And again, it's all about ROI. If you can somehow find a way to spend a hundred dollars getting Facebook likes and make two hundred dollars out of those likes um, in album sales, then more power to you. But I I just don't see the ROI being there uh, with social media. So I actually don't go out and do anything to promote my pages at all. Um, any kind of followers that come in are just are just organically coming in. A lot of people will click on my ad or they'll click over to my page from my ad and choose not to subscribe, but instead just simply click like. You see that a lot, so you pick up a lot of subscribers. But no, I I think the whole purpose of the ad is to drive people uh, to your mailing list. It's not about sending them to iTunes or CD Baby. It's not about sending them to your Facebook page. It's about sending them to the entry of that funnel that we talked about so that you can um, build that tribe of loyal of loyal fans right on so this is the last thing um earlier you mentioned a thousand fans can potentially bring you about ten thousand dollars and you mentioned scaling up so what are some examples that people can do to scale up for you know just yeah sure i think i i think i kind of um sidetrack myself on there what i was saying is this thousand fan model that we all talk about and so so popular in independent music circles you know it it theoretically works but it doesn't work if you're just selling albums i mean i guess ten thousand dollars or something but you know what we want to do is monetize the funnel beyond that initial purchase so like what i do uh is right after somebody orders i'll typically offer another purchase opportunity you know often called an upsell 
So if somebody's just bought a $10 album, maybe that upsell might be a box set. Might, maybe it might be uh, access to a membership site that's $30 a year where they can get hundreds of songs and all this cool, more you know, intimate content or, uh, or whatever the case may be. Whatever, anything you can do to up that subscriber value, to up that customer value. Um, and what I'll typically find is that about 20 to 30% of the people that ultimately buy from me do take me up on that upsell as long as it's a smart, well-crafted upsell. The idea is that, well, hey, this person just bought my album for $10. They clearly think that my songs are worth a dollar a piece. Now what if I put together uh, a package of 40 songs and offered it to them for only $20? You know, We're taking the same logic that led to the purchase in the first place and improving the terms even more to, to try to generate more income out of that out of that new cut, that new customer, that new fan. And then from there, we might follow up a couple of weeks later with an opportunity to uh, purchase a house concert, you know, where you go to their house and play for $400 or even $1,000, whatever the case may be. So you can introduce these high ticket items into the funnel. You might just do this by promoting live shows to your list. So it, it's not just about selling albums. It's about selling um, a suite of products and services to that um, list. When I say services, I'm talking about performances typically, but uh, it, it's about selling a suite of products so that you're not generating you know, $10 per customer, but on average, possibly generating $50 or $100 per customer when you average it out over these house concerts and um, merch sales and all these different things that are coming through. And again, this is going to be over time. It's not all going to be at once, but that is how you can squeeze a lot more money out of a relatively small list of people. So that's kind of how, in my opinion, you make the thousand fan model work is, is by introducing high ticket items or, or, or more. Ba- basically, I think the new model is not about making small amounts of money off of a lot of people. It's about making large amounts of pe- uh, money off of small numbers of people that are intimately connected with you and want that greater experience than the typical music fan actually wants or, or is even considering. Because you know when we're talking about national acts, it's not like... M&M's offering house concerts, you know what I mean? That's that's one of the opportunities we have as independent artists is to create these cool little points of engagement. So that's how I think you make that thousand fan model work. In terms of scaling up, I mean, it's really just about increasing your advertising because everything is digital, because you're using that autoresponder to send out those emails. I mean, whether you acquire one new fan or... 200 new fans a day, the work on your part is the same. Once you've built that funnel, everything is in place and there's really nothing much more for you to do other than answer emails. And, you know, that's the only sort of thing that, that changes is when you've got that many subscribers, you get a lot of emails, you get a lot of blog comments, you get a lot of Facebook posts and messages and tweets and things like that. And that takes a little bit of time to to respond to, um, but you know that's a good problem to have if you're if you're having so much so much fan mail that it's keeping you busy all day. So aside from that support that can come along with success, um, whether you send whether you acquire one new subscriber or two hundred new subscribers, the work is the same. So it really just if that is a if you have a profitable funnel on your hand, if you know or on your hands, and you know what that. Uh, what your subscriber value is and you're acquiring subscribers for less than what that figure is, then 
you just basically need to find more and more advertising opportunities and keep those ads coming in, and that's really how you scale. The nice thing about it all is it's compounding. You know, if you uh, build a list of a thousand subscribers this month, you know what is going to happen. Not everyone's going to fall in love with you. Not everyone's going to fall in love with your music. So you're going to see the open rate go down. It might start off at eighty percent by the time you send out your third email. It might be down to forty-five percent by the time you send out your sixth email. It might be down to thirty percent, but eventually it's going to settle out and you're going to have that core group of people that really responded to your message and those are going to be your fans but then the next month you acquire another thousand fans and you can take those those core fans those people that did stick around and add it to the pile of new fans that you just generated and so over time as you're constantly acquiring new fans everything is is snowballing and you know if you're acquiring a thousand fans a month you're not just you don't just have a thousand fans. After two years, you have twenty-four thousand fans, and um, so for the same amount of energy, of effort, of ad spend, you will have this increase in an increasing and increasing fan base, and, and that ultimately is how you do it. Wow! Thanks a lot, John. You share so much value with us just now. Hey guys, John has the Music Marketing Manifesto blog and podcast. Am I telling the truth, John? Yeah, you can check it all out at musicmarketingmanifesto.com. Thanks a lot. We really enjoyed you today, John. Thank you. Well, thank, yeah, th- thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Hopefully that all, all made sense. Once I start diving into some of this technical stuff, it's like, uh, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm upside down right now. I hope this is, I hope I'm making sense. So uh, uh, hopefully it did, and hopefully a few folks got something out of that. And again, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, John. Cheers. That was our talk with John Ojaka, and I hope that was helpful to you. We were talking about email marketing. And if you do this right, you can really have great attendance in your performances, but you can also sell your CDs and your other products and increase your sales better than not using email to market. Because what you're really doing at the end of the day is you're building relationships with your fans and they feel more connected to you. Think about that. I mean, it's easier for you to ask your friends and your family to support you than a total stranger. So you're bridging that gap. And that's the effectiveness of email marketing. I use a service called MailChimp that I recommend. There's a free version. Of course, there are paid versions. But the free version is very good. And it allows you to stay free through 2,000 subscribers. I think that's pretty amazing. There are some limitations with the free version. But if you want to use the full functions, go ahead and pay it because it's pretty affordable. That's all for today. And I really want to thank you for sticking out this long. One more time, go to iTunes, rate the show behind the note. Give us a five-star review if you think we earn it. And if you don't, then just be honest and I'll be thankful for that because I do want to improve. This is all about helping everybody here. So thanks a lot, guys. God bless you, and I'll talk to you in episode 8.